Now, have you ever noticed how much of your life is spent on the road? Like going from one place to another? I saw a recent poll. It shows that Americans actually spend 18 days per year behind the wheel of a car. Think about that. 18 days per year behind the wheel of a car. And that might not sound like much, but if you think about it, if you've been driving for even 40 years, that's just about two years of your life that you've spent on the road. right? And that doesn't include times when you've been a passenger, so it's really much more than that. But our lives are lived on roads, going from destination to destination. And there are roads that we've chosen to take, and there are some that have been chosen for us, right? Roads that we've gone down that we shouldn't have, or roads that were a much-needed change in the direction for good, right? Roads that have brought us joy and some that have brought us near to destruction, roads of tragedy, Roads of triumph. And have you ever realized that a journey on the same road can feel completely different based on your destination or the purpose of your trip, right? There's the road to the hospital when you're anticipating the birth of a baby, right? And then that same road to the hospital as you're dreading the death of a loved one, right? There's a road to the church to celebrate a wedding and the road to the same church to mourn at a funeral, the road to the airport to pick up a long-missed loved one, and the road to an airport to leave loved ones behind. Right, The same road, but completely different journeys. And those are just the literal journeys of our lives. Right, there, There's also you know, the refreshing ride of a new friendship, right? the painful drift into becoming strangers again. The thrilling on-ramp to marriage and the crushing, crowded exit ramp to divorce. Right? The path to promotion and the avenue of unemployment. The accelerated journey to adulthood and the slow, reluctant crawl to aging and eventual death. Right? And that's a journey that we all share. Right? We might not have all the others in common, but there's one walk that we do all share. Right? And just about two years ago began a rude awakening for us, right? Because as a culture, we don't do death well, right? And the last two years have provided us with constant exposure to our own mortality, right? We're all on the same road. So how do we take that journey? How do we, how do we take that journey and transform it from a journey of despair to a journey of joy, or how does this road we're on go from what could be tragic to triumphant? We're in Luke 24, 13 through 35 this morning, and, and Luke is going to pick up the story um, right after Jesus is resurrected, right? He's been risen. We talked about that part on Easter, and he's going to pick up the story where we left off. And I'm going to read a big chunk of this because it is a story, Right, And it's meant to be read that way. It's not meant to be diced up and dissected. You're supposed to hear the story. And so I'm going to read it in bigger chunks. Right, And so it says, Now that same day, this is verse 13, two of them were on their way, right, walking on a road, to a village called Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. 
Together, they were discussing everything that had taken place. And while they were discussing and arguing, Jesus himself came near and began to walk along with them. But they were prevented from recognizing him. Then he asked them, what is this dispute you're having with each other as you're walking? And they stopped walking and they looked discouraged. The one named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened there in these days? What things? He asked them. So they said to him, the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, powerful in action and speech before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we were hoping that he was the one who was about to redeem Israel. Besides all this, it's the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women from our group astounded us. They arrived early at the tomb, and when they didn't find his body, they came and reported that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they didn't see him. And so Cleopas and, and an unnamed disciple of Jesus are walking together on this road to Emmaus, likely their hometown since later they host Jesus for dinner there. And they're packing up and heading home, right? And they're, they're walking the seven miles that it takes to get to their destination. And if you think we spend a lot of hours on the road, think about folks in the ancient world. They walked everywhere, right? This trip was about from, from here to Mashpee Commons. Right? It would have been about three hours, considering they were probably going at a slow pace, sad, walking, talking, discouraged. Right? You don't walk very fast when you're discouraged. Right? Jesus, who they'd been following, who they were hoping would redeem Israel, who they were hoping would free them from the Roman tyranny and occupation they were experiencing, Jesus has died, and his body is missing, and they're done. Right? They're heading home. They're, they're just rehashing it all. It's almost like what you'd imagine the walk would be when you see politicians get ready to celebrate a, a victory on election night. Right? They get balloons. They get the shirts. They get the hats printed. They've got the victory speech. The room is set only to find out that they've lost the race. Right? Hopes are dashed. The crowd disperses. The t-shirts get thrown in the trash. It's officially over right and then they have some colorful discussions on the way home right only this isn't a simple election for these two travelers this is defeat in the deepest sense this is the fate of their nation their families their very lives their faith right to them this is god letting them down jesus is dead their hopes are dashed and I don't know what their arguments are. It doesn't say. We just know that they're discussing all the events, maybe asking where all this fits in with the prophecies that they believed, maybe disputing their theories. But we know what, that they're discussing, and it also says that they're arguing. Right? And so while these disciples were discussing and arguing, Jesus himself comes near, and he begins to walk along the road with them. Jesus starts walking along with them on this tragic road. They don't know it's him, 
right? They're kept from recognizing him, the scripture says. Now they'll see clearly in time, but God has some things that he wants to teach them on the road. And so Jesus asks them what they're disputing, like what it is that they're talking about. And what do they do? They say in verse 17, it says, they stopped walking and looked discouraged. I don't miss that. He, he asked them this question and they stopped and looked discouraged. But I mentioned earlier that you walk slow on tragic roads. Well, sometimes you just stop walking. Verse 18 says, the one named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that happened there in these days? In other words, are you living under a rock? Right? Everyone in Jerusalem knows what's, what's happened to Jesus. These things weren't done in a corner, right? Jesus' trial, his crucifixion, they were public events attended by crowds of people, and he was already famous. There was fanfare on Palm Sunday as he entered Jerusalem. Right? Crowds were praising him as he entered the city on a donkey, and then crowds were calling for his death and witnessing his torture and his crucifixion. Right? These are not historically disputed events. Jesus existed, and he was crucified, and his tomb is empty today. That it's just a matter of if you believe he's a missing corpse or if you believe he's a risen king. Well, this is like somebody coming up to you today, Jesus asking them, what are you talking about? Like, who, who's this person? It's like somebody coming up to you today and being like, what's COVID-19? Right? And you'd be like, who is this guy? Don't you know all that has happened? And then Jesus asks them, what things? Right? What things have happened? And now we get to hear their take on Jesus and all the events surrounding his death in verse 17. Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, powerful in action and speech before God and all the people, right? Was. He was. The first thing they say about Jesus, the one who's standing right in front of them, is that he was, right? He is no more. He was a prophet, powerful in action and speech before God and all the people, he said great things, and he did great things. He spoke truth about God everywhere he went. He healed the sick. He fed the hungry. He welcomed the sinner, and our leaders crucified him, they tell him. Right? Not just our leaders, our, our chief priests, the, the leaders who were supposed to keep us connected to God, they handed him over to the Romans to be put to death. And they say, but we were hoping. Right? We were hoping. They were hoping what? Right? What were they tethered to? What did they tether their hope to? We were hoping that he was the one who was about to redeem Israel. And what does it mean, redeem? Right? For them, it means to take back, right? to, to free from bondage, to free this nation from Roman rule because Rome was an occupying force in Israel at that time. Right? So they're picturing a revolution. Right? Jesus' power and influence waged here and now to take back what never belonged to Rome in the first place. That's what they wanted. We were hoping we were hoping that he would free us from the Romans, that he would establish the kingdom that God always wanted us to be, that we would have a righteous king for once. But now he's dead, and they're sad, 
right? And they're going home. See, they were hoping for immediate rescue, not eternal resurrection. They were hoping for relief from suffering, not redemption from their own sin. And we see this mentality throughout the Gospels, and we see it in our own lives too, right? It's natural. We think too small. The Jesus who only takes away your temporal pain The Jesus who only provides you with your material needs, who only heals your pain, the one who simply fixes your troubles. If that's all he does, he's not the real Jesus because he's an incomplete Jesus, right? And an incomplete Jesus quickly becomes a false god and he will disappoint you. He's not the Jesus who is on the road with these disciples, right? They know the Jesus they hoped he would be but not the Jesus who gives them true hope. They know the Jesus who died, but not the Jesus who lives, the one walking right next to them on the road. And to add to that, they tell Jesus how the women came to the tomb and it was empty, right? Only angels were there telling them that Jesus was alive, right? The women tell everyone about it, but of course, since they're women, Right? Nobody trusts their experience. Nobody trusts their eyewitness accounts. Right? You know, Jesus chose the women to know the resurrection first. And it's so telling of his love for them. After all, they were some of the only disciples that hadn't run away, right? Some of the only who actually stayed at the cross and watched Jesus die and wept. Right? Verse 24 says, some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they didn't see him. They didn't see him, so he must still be dead. He still a was and not an is. Daryl Bach, who wrote a commentary on this book, he says, they're like modern people in their skepticism. Only the presence of the raised Jesus would convince them of what happened. The irony of the narrative is that they are in the midst of what they desired and what the others had not experienced. Jesus is there with them. Don't miss Jesus. Jesus walks the tragic roads with you. You might not see him. You might not recognize him, but you are not alone. The only thing worse than walking through pain, loss, Fear and grief is walking through it alone. Jesus walks the tragic road with me, right? And he walked it all the way to the cross to pay for my sin, to redeem me. And so this is the tragic road these two are on, this resurrectionless road, a road where Jesus is a historical dead figure, where Jesus is a corpse just like they will be one day. Without the resurrection, their journey is a slow, hopeless crawl to death. Their destiny is his destiny as they see it, and they're feeling it. So what does Jesus have to say about this? We're going to see a turning point as he interjects in verse 25. It says, he said to them, how foolish you are, and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken Wasn't it necessary for the Messiah to suffer these things and enter into his glory? 
Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted for them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. And so Jesus corrects them. He rebukes them, right? They start correcting him. Like, how do you not know what's happening? Then he corrects them. How foolish you are. How slow to believe, slow to believe what the prophets have spoken. Right? See, the crucifixion was a surprise to them, but it wasn't a surprise to God. It was alluded to in the prophecies that the Jewish people not only had access to, but studied heavily. Right? Isaiah 53, 4-6, which I read uh, last week, Yet he himself bore our sicknesses, and he carried our pains, but we in turn regarded him stricken. Struck down by God and afflicted, but he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. That was written hundreds of years before Jesus came. It was necessary, Jesus said. Why? Because of our sickness. Because of our suffering, because of our rebellion, because of our sin. It had to be laid on him. Didn't you know, Jesus says to them, didn't you know? Punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. Don't you see your need isn't just for a king that chases away the bad guys, but a savior who dies for the bad in all of us. For the things in our lives that we would never want anybody else to see. Right? He died for those. He took those on himself for you. They are forgiven in him. You are forgiven in him. Right? Yes, he came to conquer suffering. He came to conquer death and hell. But the means by which he conquered it was to take upon himself the very cause of those things. Our own sin. Right, our own rebellion against God. God loved the world in this way. He sent his only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. Right, John 3.16 Sent him to die and raised him to life on the third day so that we would not perish in death but that we would live eternally through the resurrection. Didn't you know, Jesus said, and then he takes them through all the scriptures and he points to everything concerning himself, how all of scripture points to Jesus. Like David and Goliath, David is an imperfect picture of Jesus who conquers our giant enemy, death, right? Our greater and incorruptible king who ushers in true prosperity and righteous rule over God's people. Right? Moses, Jesus is the better Moses who delivers us from our bondage to sin and ushers us into the promised land of eternal life in the kingdom of God. All the way back to Adam, Jesus is the better Adam who, when tempted by Satan, refused to buckle and trusted God's word over his empty promises of glory. Right? Who, instead of blaming his wife... Right? And the church is often called the bride of Christ. Instead of blaming her, he dies for her. Right? The Psalms, they point to Jesus. The prophets, they point to Jesus. The wisdom of Proverbs points to Jesus. 
From beginning to end, it's all pointing to Jesus. And God's massive plan is to restore peace on earth through the reign of his son. They were thinking too small. Jesus has succeeded in every place that we fail, and he has taken all of our failures upon himself. If you believe in him, you are free. All of scripture is like this big arrow that's pointing to him, and Jesus is showing that to these disciples on the road. He wants them to see that not only was it necessary for him to die, but also that he's been raised. And they're going to see it. They're going to see it soon. I love this picture of Jesus just taking time to walk and talk with two hurting people. One of them, we don't even know their name. They're not named in this account, but Jesus knows. And so that's a lot of ground covered on a three-hour walk, right? Well, now they're about to reach their destination. Verse 28 says, They came near to the village where they were going, and he gave the impression that he was going further. But they urged him, stay with us. It's almost evening, and now the day is almost over. And the night wasn't a safe time to travel, right? On foot back then on roads where robbers would have been hiding in the bushes and all that kind of thing. So he went in to stay with them. It was as he reclined at the table with them that he took the bread, blessed it and broke it, and gave it to them. Their eyes were open and they recognized him but he disappeared from their sight. And so Jesus goes in with them and he shares a meal with them. And we see this same formula that we saw in the Last Supper. He takes the bread. He blesses it. He breaks it. He gives it to them. They break bread together. Jesus breaks the bread and he gives it to them and their eyes are open. And then he disappears, which tells you that he's achieved his purpose, right? It also shows that they no longer need his physical presence. They know he lives. I want to look at a painting uh, that Patrick's going to put up there. This is a painting called Supper at Emmaus by Caravaggio, made in 1601, right? This is that moment when their eyes are open and the two disciples are sitting with him, right? One's about to fall, get up out of his chair. The other one throws his hands out, utterly amazed. Everything is changed for them. Jesus is alive. And there's this bowl, I don't know if you can see it, this bowl that's kind of hanging off the table. Do you see that? And it's almost like the painter, he's inviting you into the painting, to jump into the painting and grab that bowl before it falls. Right? He puts us in the room. Do you see Jesus? Do you see Jesus the way that they see Jesus? His goal in walking alongside them and carefully teaching them was that their eyes would be open and that they'd recognize him. Why? Because if they recognize him, they will understand his resurrection. Because he lives we will live too, right? Because he was raised, we will be raised too. Death does not get the final word. Life minus the resurrection equals despair. Life plus the resurrection equals joy. Without the resurrection, we are journeying on a tragic road. 
But with the hope of the resurrection, tragedy gives way to triumph. Right? I'm going to say that again. Without the resurrection, we are traveling on a tragic road. But with the hope of the resurrection, tragedy gives way to triumph. Jesus wants you to recognize him. Right? He cares that you recognize him because when you do, you will go from hopeless to hope-filled. You will be tethered to real hope in the real Jesus. Let's see what our two disciples are doing now. Verse 32, they said to each other, weren't our hearts burning within us while he was talking with us on the road and explaining the scripture to us? What do they mean? Right? They were experiencing intense emotion and excitement, right? You might compare this to our modern idea of lighting a fire under somebody, right? This is excitement. There's anticipation. There's a desire for more. There's a sense that your soul is resonating with what's being said, right? It's the idea that something special is taking place. And the scripture says in verse 33, that very hour they got up and returned to Jerusalem. They found the 11 and those with them gathered there who said, the Lord has truly been raised and has appeared to Simon. Then they began to describe what had happened on the road and how he was made known to them in the breaking of bread. It says that very hour they got up, right? Remember they were urging Jesus to stay with them because it was getting dark. Well, suddenly a dark road doesn't seem so dark anymore, right? Suddenly the danger is worth it because suddenly tragedy has given way to triumph, right? Because of hope, true hope that keeps you tethered. It's found in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, right? Jesus is alive. And as the hymn by the Gettys puts it, because he lives, I can face tomorrow, right? Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know he holds the future and life is worth the living just because he lives. Well, how about because he lives, I can face today. Right? We don't have to wait for tomorrow. We can face today. The resurrection gives us hope, power, and joy for today. And that's what we really need, isn't it? Right? We need hope for today. That's the hope these disciples have. They get up that very hour right away, Scripture says. And they run back to Jerusalem because the good news, the gospel, it was never meant to be locked away at a house in Emmaus, right? It was meant to be shared. It's not supposed to be stay locked away inside of you either, right? As believers, as Christians, if our eyes have been opened, right? And we've gone from the despair of a resurrectionless life to the hope of the resurrection, then that story can't stay here can't stay in this building, right? And we can't stay put. We need to move, right? Can't stay locked in a church building, right? If you and I have had our hearts burn, our eyes opened just to come to church on Sunday to sing songs, to hear a message, to look at the back of each other's heads, then, then what, are, what is this all for, right? What kind of road is this, right? Because as much as I love Sunday, if this is all we ever do, then that's a really depressing picture of hope. Because there are only two journeys in this story, a hopeless one and a hope-filled one. And there are people on hopeless roads that need people to come alongside them and walk and listen to them and ask them good questions. 
Right? We can be scuffing our feet down the road of tragedy, or we can be running down the road of triumph to tell the world. He has truly been raised. He is risen indeed. And so how do we do this? Right? There's nothing like being told to do something but being given no details, right? But just look at the story, right? What did the disciples do? All they did was explain what happened to them. Right? One way to just come along somebody, side somebody on a road or just to even share about Jesus is just to learn your own story, right? From birth till now, and then share it humbly, Share it honestly with others. Share it cohesively. Write it down so that you have it memorized. Get in the practice of sharing it in different ways, short versions, long versions, depending on the circumstance. Have vulnerability and depth. Right? Share how Jesus turned your road of remorse into a road of rejoicing. Right? Before you tell other people what they should or shouldn't do or should and shouldn't believe, why don't you tell them what you believe and why you believe it? Right? Ask people in your sphere about their story. Right? One of the most amazing things that happened was in a small group. We were all sharing our stories, and, and there were a lot of believers in there, and there were some people who weren't believers. We shared our stories, and there was a moment in a lot of people's stories where they met Jesus, where their eyes were open. And there was a woman who was coming to our small group and she shared her story and she realized, I haven't had that moment. I've been hanging out with you all. I've been going to church, but like I haven't had that experience with God. You know, it doesn't always happen like in a snap like that either. But she was recognizing that there was something different about her and other people in the group. But she wouldn't have known that contrast if she didn't hear the stories of the people in the group, right? She would have just been going along with everybody, thinking that she's part of this thing and not quite understanding that there is a difference, right? This isn't easy, right? It takes time. It takes intentionality. It takes relational generosity. But isn't that just the way of Jesus, right? We just read all about it. It's exactly what he did. He comes alongside. He listens. He asks good questions. He shares truth. He turns tragedy into triumph, right? The road looks different because hope has changed the journey, all because he lives, right? And maybe you feel like you're on a tragic road today, right? And a resurrection Hope will change your life, but it doesn't mean that the hard things stop hurting. Right? It means we can walk through hard things knowing that Jesus is alive and by our side. Right? Knowing that God keeps his promises and there's hope. Right? We are not alone. And some, some of you already know this as I mentioned in the kids' sermon, but this is where the name of our church comes from, Seven Mile Road Church, right? That road to Emmaus was seven miles long. And Jesus walked alongside hopeless folks on that road, and their eyes were open. We want to be a church, a community of God's people who come alongside people on hopeless roads and introduce them to Jesus so that they can experience the hope Right, the hope of the resurrection. We want to see souls redeemed for his glory and for their joy. We want to see neighbors become the family of God and sent back out on the road with good news to share. Right, can't stay here. We want people sent back out. Lord, may it be so.